Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation, our final show to close out what has been nothing short of an exceptional year for us, filled with incredible guests and amazing conversations. We are so incredibly grateful to you, our listeners, for continuing to enjoy our show and helped us to continue to grow this past year. We are proud and humbled to be able to put this show out there, and we couldn't do it without you. We also want to thank all our amazing guests this past year who provide the expert commentary and insights. It is truly their brilliance that makes this show what it is. So, with that in mind, we bring you our 2021 Year in Review, a fun and snappy way to look back at some of our favorite moments from all the laughs and learnings from this past year. From all of us here at The Negotiation and WPIC Marketing and Technologies, we hope all of you had a Merry Christmas and wish you all a Happy New Year. Enjoy. Our first episode of 2021 and episode 75 overall featured Matt Sheehan, fellow and researcher at Macro Polo, the digital think tank of the Paulson Institute. Matt was an awesome guest to have as his portfolio features writings on technology in China and its interactions with the U.S. and the rest of the world. During that episode, we asked Matt, what is the Chinese tech ecosystem going to look like in 2025? And here's what he had to say. I sort of narrowed it down to, you know, one or two key trends that I think are going to really shape things. And, and those kind of relate back to what I was talking about earlier when you, when you asked about key trends in the Chinese sector, uh, technology sector. I sort of identified in terms of like a, yeah, the industry sector-wide trend is this move from sort of consumer-facing platforms to companies that apply emerging technology to traditional industries. And then in terms of, you know, is this going to work out? Is this going to like, uh, is this going to be successful for China? I looked at as the main obstacle there, um, restrictions on uh, semiconductor exports to China. Are U.S. restrictions on chips going to fundamentally handicap China's attempt to transition into this more like industrial technology era? And, you know, there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of detail in there that, you know, you can, of course, find in the report. But I'd say the high level takeaway was that on this five-year time scale, 2020 to 2025, I don't foresee chip restrictions, chip export controls, semiconductor export controls, hobbling China's transition to this kind of industrial tech juggernaut that it wants to become. But as we stretch it out further, as we look like 2025 to 2030 and beyond, I do think that restrictions on China's ability to access leading edge semiconductors are eventually going to kind of serve as a, a bit of a cap on how far they can go with this kind of foundational technology. So for these next few years, even if you don't have access to the absolute most cutting edge chips, you can still do a lot of what you need to do. If you want to build a more like automated factory, or you want to build a 5G network, or you want to build a smart grid, most of these type of applications don't require the absolute most cutting edge chips that the US and other places kind of have a, a bit of a monopoly on. So I think, you know, in, in the short term, US export controls to Huawei are probably going to slow down the 5G rollout, which has obviously received a ton of attention, but they're not going to fundamentally hobble the Chinese technology ecosystem. It'll be more about trying to maintain China's long-term dependence on the United States and its allies in Europe, Japan, South Korea, maintain China's dependence on those countries for cutting-edge semiconductors. And as the industry kind of keeps advancing, the the I think the goal for a lot of U.S. policymakers is don't you know don't try to totally uh, obliterate the Chinese tech ecosystem. That's a very dangerous and volatile uh, thing to try to do. But do maintain do keep China dependent on on these exports, and that 
then kind of gives long-term leverage to the, to the U.S. and its allies. Episode 78 brought us a conversation with John Pomfret, a former Washington Post Bureau chief in Beijing and the author of both The Beautiful Country and Middle Kingdom, America and China from 1776 to the present. John has also been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for international reporting. We couldn't have asked for a more esteemed and well-respected guest to talk to us about the future of the world's relationship with China. First, although Trump was pretty lousy at alliance management, to put it mildly, the Europeans are, Western Europeans in particular, but the Poles as well, Hungary not so much, definitely the Czechs, are concerned about China's influence far more than they used to be. And this is not simply, this is not something that was a result of American pressure. This is something that was kind of organic to their experience. In the past, the Germans used to be the rah-rah team for closer relations with China. And now, now you have the Germans coming to the United States for, info, for more information about how America manages CFIUS, which is the organization in, in the Treasury Department that looks at foreign investment in the United States as a way to protect German companies. Because for a while, the Chinese were buying one German company a week. This was you know, a few years ago. But nonetheless, the Germans have put a significant damper on China's ability to invest in Germany. So this is not something that's simply uh, a, an obsession of the United States. You see it in your, your, your country as well, in Canada as well. But you're also beginning to see it in the developing world, which used to be the bastion of pro-China feeling. So even in Africa, which has been the beneficiary of a huge amount of Chinese investment, you have significant problems vis-a-vis the Chinese. In Pakistan as well, there have been terrorist attacks against Chinese investment uh, projects there. So you have China being viewed in Pakistan as kind of a new America. So this is not simply, and then of course, India, the Chinese are, have a significantly negative relationship with the, with the Indian uh, public. So, and now in some parts of the world, you know, people love China, but even in those parts of the world, like for example, Brazil, which was having a very positive relation to China, with China under previous administrations, the current administration is very anti-China. And now you have a situation where it's become a political football over what vaccine to use, whether it's the Western, the, the Pfizer, the Moderna vaccines, or the Chinese developed vaccine. And that's become a political football, and the Chinese clearly don't want to see that type of problem as well. And then the COVID problem kind of cuts both ways. Because on one side, you have a lot of respect for the Chinese for dealing with COVID so well. At the same time, there remains this residual resentment against China for not really failing, at least in the perception of a lot of people, to cope with the COVID problem in the beginning and to not share share information about that as well. So I think it's a very complicated picture, but it's it's hardened over the course of the last uh, five to 10 years. Added to that, if I may, the wolf warrior diplomacy of Chinese diplomats going around the world, lecturing countries, lecturing Sweden, lecturing Canada, lecturing Germany, lecturing Poland. People are a bit fed up, lecturing South Africa as well. People are a bit fed up with that type of sort of the new bold Chinese diplomat um, who are clearly doing it in order to get brownie points in Beijing. But what's happening is on you know, in the societies in which they're living, Sweden, South Africa, Brazil, Canada, United States, it's, it's, it's negatively affecting China's public opinion and its soft power. Up next is a snippet from our conversation with Anne Stevenson-Young, a guest we continue to bring back and will be doing so again in early 2022 as an expert on China-U.S. relations. Anne is co-founder and research director of J Capital Research, 
This particular conversation was from February 2021, and we asked Anne for her thoughts on how the West's perception of China had changed and what the contributing factors might have been. I think it's two major things. Uh, one one thing is just a reduction in uh, in money flows. So there's just less portfolio money that's that's going into China. And you know when when money is flowing into China from America, it's always going to bring with it uh, a lot of business lobbying and a lot of positive. I mean, positive opinions, positive interactions with China. So I think that was always going to happen as the amount of uh, investment capital came down. The critical issue really is Xi Jinping. So since he came in, took over in 2012 and officially in 2013. And think of all the things that he's really screwed up. He, he, he starts this Belt and Road Initiative, which really has no particular purpose except to obscure China's money management, because after all, we have plenty of multilateral institutions to invest in in these countries. And China just wanted to dominate one, one such institution. He's he's managed to antagonize uh, an awful lot of the countries that have been targeted by the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, the first focus of the of the BRI was Southeast Asia, and instead of creating new alliances in Southeast Asia, he antagonized Southeast Asia and sort of moved the Belt and Road. Uh, West. So there's that. There's the domestic initiatives like building the mega cities, which are going to be huge, 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 you know, the Pearl River Delta and, you know, and connecting it with Hong Kong and making it into a new metropolis and the area around Beijing and Tianjin. Now you just don't hear anything about that because it's been such a failure and such a money sink. Um, But in fact, Hong Kong has gone totally the other direction. So it's becoming, you know, it's uh, another Chinese city as miserable, as dirty, as locked down, um, as corrupt as, as a Zhuhai, rather than becoming part of a, of a broader, more open area in the Pearl River Delta. Another of our favorite foreign policy experts is James McGregor, author, journalist, and chairman of APCO Worldwide Greater China. We asked James the same question we asked Anne about how he thought the West's, particularly the U.S.'s, perception of China had changed and why. And here's what he had to say. China overreached. You know, they went too far in so many directions, whether it was claiming the South China Sea, building those islands, Mr. Xi telling Obama while he was visiting Washington that he would not militarize the islands and then they get militarized. You know, all of the, all of all of the different things that, that China has done that are more extreme. And also Trump, you know, making going after China so strongly and and uh, noisily also, I think, changed changed perceptions a lot. I think it was just ready to happen. I think that the U.S. felt betrayed, actually, kind of betrayed and bamboozled about all of the goodwill they had put in to helping China, opening our universities, opening our markets, scholarships, helping them build their legal system, getting them into WTO, on and on and on. And none of that goodwill was ever returned. And I think that 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 you know that created a lot of anger in the United States and and globally, um, you know, with with all the hacking and technology theft and forced tech transfer. And the problem with China, China was very good at operating when it had an empty hand. They they could negotiate from a position of weakness very well, but once they became strong, they've just overdone it. I think really what's happened is a lot of what we're seeing in front of us is were things that were caused by China. China, it's overreach. You know, China, really, the real turning point was the global financial crisis, where China looked around and said, well, wait a second, 
our system works better. It showed that Wall Street was a mess. It showed that our system had huge weaknesses. They got through the Asian financial crisis and the global financial crisis just because they did not open up their financial system to the West and to the world's systems. And uh, they started thinking, geez, you know, our system is better. They also came to the conclusion that the U.S. and, and Europe also were both in inexorable decline and that it was China's time. And then all the hubris of the multi-thousand year civilization and came into play. And it's like, you know, the they're getting their rightful place as a leader of the world. And and then the, the behavior, the way they did it was they, they just started treating out the outside world the same way they treat their own people. Tremble and obey, you know, coming down very hard on people, trying to control the narrative of what can be said about them outside the country. You know, I think they at first wanted to try to make the world safe for the Communist Party, that it's like, this is who we are. This is how we operate. Just leave us alone and let us let us operate in the world. Then I think they, they realized that the, the best defense is a good offense. It's better to be um, feared than loved. If you can't be loved, you might as well be feared. But when's the last time anybody in Washington, D.C. said, oh, I wonder what the world will think about this? I mean, the U.S. Op- operates in its own realm in kind of the same way we you know we're a superpower so we kind of do what we want you know, we didn't we, we didn't uh, um, you know ask the world we didn't think about what will the world think when we invade Iraq and other things so i think it's it's kind of a superpower hubris up next in our roundup of 2021 is a conversation with Chloe Gonzalez former asia e-commerce manager at L'Oreal and digital marketing manager at Alibaba then international business development manager for Tmall Global We asked Chloe about the impact live streaming has had on e-commerce in China, specifically on the cosmetics vertical, and the fascinating fact that Chinese consumers use live streaming not to save time, but to spend time. Yeah, I mean, live streaming is huge uh, among all categories. China is definitely the largest live streaming industry in the world. Um, I think before COVID, there were like 500 million uh, live streaming users. But I think this uh, number skyrocketed after the COVID because people were actually stuck at home. And uh, that was a a really good way to to sell their products online. So, yeah, live streaming is just booming, um, especially during uh, festivals. Uh, We see like brands and bloggers doing 24-7 live streaming uh, because what is really interesting in China is that actually consumers use e-commerce not to save time as we would do in the West, but to spend time. So even though they don't want to buy anything, they would connect on Tala and Tmall to watch live streaming, to watch videos, to read blogs and articles, etc. So that's also part of you know the way they like to be entertained is like uh, you know at 9 p.m., 10 p.m., even sometime 12 or 1 a.m., 2 a.m., they would connect and see what live stream are going on and, and discover new products. So that's of the kind of uh, uh, thing they do. Um, and now we've seen so many um, apps that are doing live streaming. I think there are more than 100 uh, live streaming uh, app uh, or platform that can do live streaming. So this is definitely a big trend. And uh, especially for cosmetics, um, it's really, really trendy. And we've seen a lot of beauty bloggers like Lydia Chi and Via uh, doing this type of live streaming to help the brand boost the product. And actually a lot of brands, you know, they, they sometimes buzz thanks to those KOLs because if Lydia Chi or Via accepts uh, to feature one of your products, uh, I mean, it's just a really, big, really big, uh, you know, showcase and a big boom for yourself. So it's definitely uh, uh, something that is trendy uh, in the market. 
In May of 2021, we brought you our conversation with Charles Lavoie, who leads and manages WPIC's Creative Labs. Prior to joining WPIC, Charles served as the marketing director at BioTwin, the director of strategy and business development at PBB Creative, and China advisor to both Can Live Sports and Career Up. We carved out the part of the conversation where Charles discusses cross-border creativity and marketing and how to work with brands that have a framework they want to preserve, yet it needs adaption and innovation in order to be successful in foreign markets like China. Agencies tend to push a lot the word creativity. To, to me, it's really kind of bringing past or existing concepts or inspiration together. Being creative is like in the tech world, making an invention. There's a lot of invention that are made that are not commercializable, like that you can't commercialize. So it's kind of the gap between invention and commercialization becomes innovation. And there's the same challenge in creativity. So obviously we can be creative as much as we can, but the big challenge is to be creative and relevant, to be creative that people care about and that actually helps the brand. And when it comes to cross-border marketing, the other kind of paradox here is that international brands want to find partners in China that are creative and can help their brand. But at the same time, a lot of them have the conversation, well, this is my brand framework and I don't want you to innovate. I want you to stay within that framework. And then in that sense, okay, how can you be creative when there's that much framework? And that's really kind of the big challenge of cross-border creativity. And that's where you're kind of looking at concept of the culture and the ultimate goal is to try to convince that, okay, let's take what's existing, innovate. And I would say in cross-border brand building, you're not building a new brand. There's already so much elements existing. So that creativity you kind of want to add on. And then the ideal like goal is, is there something that we can create and innovate that's going to inspire back the headquarter and that they're going to do something. And I've had experience in the past and that's, that's been, you know, that's, I think really, really challenging because the perception sometimes of working with agencies in China is just, it's a secondary market. they take our brand, just execute, use our uh, creative assets and then just adapt it, tweak it, but don't really innovate. Don't really be too creative. And then there's been really good case study of the innovations and the creativity that we were able to bring to China actually inspired the people in the headquarter. Oh, we should do that in our home market. And I think that's really what we want to deliver. Next up is an excerpt from our conversation with Benjamin Wall, a brand strategy, business and sports development expert. He is head of China for the German professional football club Borussia Dortmund. Prior to this, Benjamin led the China strategy for Bayer 04 Leverkusen from 2016 to 2017, establishing a youth football academy in China in the process. We asked Benjamin how China will be able to grow the sport there and whether China can and will adopt similar strategies used in other areas of the world or perhaps borrow from the successes or failures trying to grow other sports in China and what strategies specific to the China market they would then use. I think the very first approaches that kids and people are able to play it, right? For for many, many decades, China was investing into basketball courts. Uh, you lived here many, many years. You see everywhere basketball courts, at companies, at parks, uh, everywhere. Uh, so that sport was promoted for a very long time. And now that's shifting or additionally soccer and football is coming in as well, that you see pitches here and there. 
space is very rare in those super mega cities, which you have everywhere in China. But you see that when a company is building a new complex, they have the obligation to build three small football pitches as well next to it that people can play. So that's the very first step that the, the people are able to play and that you introduce football and soccer to the, to the kindergartens, to the middle schools and to the educational system. Also a challenge, not that easy because we all know in China, the educational plan, the curriculum is very tight and you don't have class until four or five o'clock. Like in Europe, you have basically it until, until the evening and then plus homework. And so you have to integrate football sport um, into the yeah, curriculum of, of the students. But that's governmental goals. So that's happening. And then on top, the foreign clubs are coming in, right? Promoting, promoting the joy, the, the passion which you can have with football. Um, and I always get the question, who are the Chinese fans? Why, why do they like football? Why do they like Borussia Dortmund? As you said, in, in, in the US, uh, you have a college team. You're growing up with them. It's your university or it's your region. Well, during the dis- uh, due to the distance, you don't have that here in China. But if you ask German football fans, Borussia Dortmund fans, you ask 10 people and you get 10, get 10 answers. And that's the same in China. We have fans who love a certain player. They're saying, I really like Erling Haaland or Marco Reus. You have fans who travel to Europe and they said BVB was the greatest stadium experience. You have fans who are telling you a specific game where they were watching Borussia Dortmund and we won the title or scored a certain goal. You've got um, fashion-driven fans who being like, you've got so many young, handsome players, so they're following more the players uh, than the club. So there's such a big variety about football and that variety we're trying to kind of trying to cover with Borussia Dortmund as well. Not only focusing on sports reports and giving coaching classes, but of course, promoting the values of the club as well, uh, promoting our atmosphere, um, organizing travels to Germany to experience this, um, leveraging the players, how they live beside the pitch, what they're doing in their spare time. So uh, it's a broad business field, I would say. Episode 93 featured Greg Turner, an industry leader in live sports and entertainment events and venue management in China. He is the founder and managing director at High Performance, which manages and promotes events at the Shantou University Sports Park. Greg himself led the development of the STU Sports Park, a $110 million project donated by the Li Ka-shing Foundation to Shantou University. Two parts of this conversation jumped out at me while recording this episode. The first was Greg talking about the role between sport and government in China, and the second was explaining the difference between a Western sports fan and a Chinese sports fan and why this difference exists. So I think that we can do that probably easiest by, by contrasting like the CBA versus the NBA. You know, the NBA, it's obviously a very commercial driven entity. It's its owners make its rules and its owners and the commissioner decide how the league is going to develop and grow. Whereas the CBA by its nature, I mean, it's the China Basketball Association. It's the governing body for basketball in China. And they just happen to have a league on top of that. So it would kind of be like Hockey Canada running the NHL. Right. But even more so, it's the government running Hockey Canada, running the NHL. So I think that, you know, that's that's an important thing to keep in mind. And that's true across almost any sport is that it's very clearly written in any kind of government document you see is that the associations, which are quasi government, are responsible for running whatever sport you're going to be dealing with. So knowing that, that 
that's the situation. That's why it's so important to take some time to understand how the government's trying to develop sports. Right now, since I think about 2017, um, the government's been going on with a really strong reform effort for sports. Um, I know one of your previous guests, Radley, he mentioned a few numbers like the the size that they want to grow the market to, but it's so much more than that. Um, it's it's so deep in terms of how it's how it's trying to grow. You know, it's aimed to become one of the the pillars of the new Chinese economy you know, sports consumption and everything that that includes. So as they're shifting away from manufacturing and they're trying to become more of a a balance with service and manufacturing or even more on the service side, sports is seen as part of that basket of industries that's going to develop the national economy and and, uh, help keep growing, you know, and through the economic benefit, they see all the other things coming from that. So as people are buying more sports, whatever they're buying from it, they become more, you know, especially with a strong national team or strong domestic leagues or players succeeding overseas or whatever, they're going to be buying more of that players or that teams or that sports goods. And then they become more connected to that sport and they feel more patriotic, even if they don't play it themselves, even if they're not really that interested in it. And I think that this is something else we could really touch into is what's the difference between a Chinese sports fan and a Western sports fan. So, I mean, a Chinese sports fan, a Western sports fan, I mean, like passion is probably the word you'd use to describe a Western sports fan. They just live and die for their team or their favorite player or anything else. Right. And, and they, they they play their sport, you know, like, like you mentioned before we started recording, you play, you, you want to play hockey three times a week. One time is not enough. I'm the same way. I want to play hockey three, three, four times a week when I can. But, uh, you know, a Chinese sports fan, they, they like their team. They're probably more connected to the player their favorite player and they'll change teams based on that player just because maybe the player is handsome or, or his guy's got some special skill that they really connect to, or there's some memory that they have of, of this certain player doing something very special at one time that they just keep holding on to. But even more so than that, sports is really just one piece of, of an entertainment diet that they have, right? If they have to choose between watching their, their, their favorite player, their favorite team play a game or go watch a movie with friends, it's, it's actually really difficult decision, right? And then if you add in dinner, like going for, out for dinner with friends, they're probably going to choose the dinner first and foremost, right? Because, you know, food here, everybody loves food, eating so much. So sports doesn't have that drive, that same passion that we have in the West. And so when international organizations come in here and they try and start building their their brand or their sport or, or whatever they're doing, and they don't connect with, with people the same way they do in the West, you know, they, they kind of sit here, they're kind of left scratching their head going, you know, why don't people care? Why don't they care about what we're about the sport so much? The, but the thing is, they do care, but they just don't have uh, the same connection to it that we do in the West. And I think that still goes back to what we discussed earlier with, you know, that missing gap of, of grade eight to high school to university or graduating high school where they just don't have any sports in their lives. We hit a big milestone this year, celebrating the 100th episode of the Negotiation Podcast. We were extremely blessed to be able to bring on Dominic Barton, Canadian Ambassador to the People's Republic of China, to celebrate. Dominic spent close to 20 years working for McKinsey & Company with a focus on China, at first serving as Chairman of Asia for the firm before taking the helm of Global Managing Director from 2009 to 2018 amid China's rising prominence on the world stage. Ambassador Barton is also the co-author of The China Vignettes, which was a glimpse into the complexity and richness of daily life in China. I asked Ambassador Barton about the main insights and takeaways he gained while writing that book. I'd say there were four or five things that that I sort of took away about it. One is just this deep, deep focus on education and children. Um, That was fundamental. You know, the the importance, almost like in the Maslowian hierarchy of needs, I would, you know, we in the West would probably have food first, and then you kind of go up the 
triangle. I think in China, it would be education first and then food. Like, you know, and there were stories of, like people I spoke with where they sacrificed what they ate to ensure that there was enough money to send their child or one of their children to school. So just this intense focus on education and the wanting the children to to do as well as they possibly can. I think the work ethic, that's probably people know that, but it gets back to what we talked about at the beginning, my first impression, you know, people at Friday night at 11 o'clock, people were working, building buildings and, the, you know, the hours people put in. I still see that today. I'm visiting. I like to make sure I go out into the region. So out to factories and so forth. And, you know, people are doing 12 hour shifts, uh, six days a week. People are working very, very hard. That drive, if you will, the strength of the family unit. I, I really felt that people, how people cared about their siblings, their parents, the grandparents, and the sacrifices that people would make for each other, but kind of the strength of that, of the family unit. That struck me. It's people are, they want to have a better life. I I guess the last thing I would just say, generosity, generosity. Uh, What struck me was, in fact, the poorest people that I met with, like I, I would go and visit these families and the poorest people were actually the most general, everyone was generous, but the most generous. I was really shocked by that. I remember one case, just I was with my son and we were in just outside of Chongqing and there was a rural family that had been moved to an apartment, you know, and and they were like on the, I think it was the 15th floor of this apartment building and they had ducks on the balcony, like ducks, right, that were there. And these were obviously very important things. And they they killed one of the ducks and cooked the duck for for this visit, right? And I remember my son was pretty shocked, right? Because they they killed the ducks, they cooked, and it was kind of like from the farm to fork type of thing, live and didn't have done it a different way. And he didn't want to eat. I remember that he'd say, Dad, I don't, you know, I don't really I said, We're gonna you're gonna eat everything off we're gonna eat, we're gonna suck on the bones of this thing if we need to. This is a but people I just say this because it was a just the generosity and that of people. And I and I found that actually throughout people just being generous. I don't, that was something that uh, really struck me. This past summer, we were fortunate enough to grab time enough for not just one episode, but two with Zach Dykewald, founder and CEO of Young China Group, a think tank and consultancy with a focus on the emerging influence of China's millennial generation on the marketplace, workplace, and international politics. Zach is also the author of Young China, How the Restless Generation Will Change Their Country and the World. The book explores questions of identity impacting China's young generation, specifically the 420 million or so people born after 1990. This excerpt we pulled has Zach explaining how, in order to understand China's youth, it begins with understanding their parents, the pressures they face growing up, and the landscape they must navigate to find their place in this world. In order to understand the children, you have to understand the parents. You know, my dad was a psychologist. He moved to Berkeley from Jersey. Like, and so, so when I was young and, and feeling anxiety, he had the vocabulary to talk with me about it and not necessarily understand it. But he, he sort of gets while there, why there's a sort of mental health transition in the United States um, transitioning towards just deeper awareness and, and, and understanding of it, even though you still get that kind of conservative pushback around you know, why don't these kids just toughen up? So if you have Americans who grew up in the 60s and 70s wondering why their kids don't just toughen up, think about the generation that built China's manufacturing economy. And think about the way that they 
would understand or not the issues around overwork, around these identity anxieties, pressure around marriage, pressures around jobs, the cost of real estate in China. I mean, this is the, the parents and grandparents of the millennial generation, the Gen Z generation in China were known as the eat bitter generation. Eat bitter means working extraordinarily long hours for long periods of time. And I'm not talking like work hard for a semester and we'll take you to Disneyland, not that kind of delayed gratification like we have in the US, like working hard for five years, 10 years, decades, so that the next generation could have a better life. It's the stories that we hear in the 80s and 90s of, of early factory China, of people begging for extra hours at the end of the week and the end of the month, because it was the first time in post-communist China that they could work harder and longer and earn more. And that opportunity just lighting them up. And so when you ask those parents to be understanding of the pressures of modernity, there's more generational distance that they have to bridge. I often say that in most of the world, uh, we have generation gaps. You know, this whole, the music is too damn loud thing. Uh, If you look at like a picture of Woodstock versus a picture of Coachella, the, the experiences ultimately were not that different between the generations, even though it was 40 years apart. But if you think about the generational chasms, what I call generational gulfs between China's boomers and their kids, there is so much more distance that they have to span. And so that's all to say that this young generation is feeling a couple things right now. First, they're feeling this incredible pressure to get ahead. Second, they're subjected to enormous competition through the Chinese education and job market. And third, they are entering a job market that does not have enough white collar jobs to support the increasingly educated population of young people. And so you get companies like Pinduoduo, Alibaba, JD, whatever, who feel like their employees are disposable and treat them that way. Seven day work week, six day work weeks, you get a, you get a one day weekend twice a month. It's why you're starting to see more suicides in these large organizations. And it's a shame. It's a shame that that's where it is. Um, and, and when I talk with sort of global organizations who are looking to hire in China, and you must, because I mean, the idea that Todd, you or I could do a job as well as some of these young, educated people in China that are in a, in a Chinese market facing role is ridiculous. And anyone who tells you otherwise is wrong. And I, I'm, I'm willing to pound the table on that one. But this quality of life question, this attention to mental health, a willingness of global companies, even though there, there are struggles for, for young, Chinese, young Chinese people looking to work in global organizations, the ability to have a better work-life balance, the, the dignity that sometimes comes with these more mature organizations who, who has uh, more respect for, for the personal space, personal time, and mental well-being of their young people, to me, is a real hiring advantage, um, especially now. When, when you're looking for top-tier talent in China. As the summer drew to a close, we started to dig into the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing. Our first conversation around this was with Mark Dreyer, a China-based media and sports professional. Mark has been based in China since shortly before the 2008 Olympics, where he has worked with several media outlets, both domestic and international. Mark is the Marketing and Communications Director of the American Chamber of Commerce in China and the founder of China Sports Insider and the China Correspondent for Sports Business Group. We asked Mark to talk about what the expectations are for this year's Winter Olympics from a hosting standpoint, which sports Chinese viewers and consumers are most excited about, 
and what the goals are for China's athletes with respect to participation and performance. It's such a different event, I think, to, to 2008. Uh, of course, that was the first Olympics and the summer games are so much larger. I think the messaging here in China around these games, because of COVID, they very much changed to uh, to being simple and healthy. And those is, that's kind of become the messaging. So uh, basically playing it down as much as possible, uh, trying, to, trying to put on a safe games. So that has, I think, dampened the buzz to a certain extent because... You know, when you think of the Olympics, you think huge extravaganza. Well, people aren't talking about that. They're deliberately uh, playing, playing, playing that down. Uh, of course, the buzz will pick up when we get to the end of the year uh, and we start moving into the, the home stretch. And, and as we get to the winter season, we can start to see some of these test events, which are, we hope going to be rescheduled for uh, for the for the later part of this year, ahead of the Olympics, which start on February fourth, I'm sure there will be buzz, but it's just not going to be quite the same. It's not going to be anything like the same as as uh, as 2008 was, and that's okay. There's uh, you know there's, there's reasons that are outlined for that. In terms of expectations, again, I think this will be kind of led by by those at the top they'll play down expectations china knows that it's not a particularly strong winter sports nation they'll want to have their best ever performance i think uh, i'm certain of that whether they will or not is is still kind of up for debate the goal that china has set is not so much medals it's just to have one competitor in every single discipline uh, if you look at the uh, look in the past you know china hasn't had uh, athletes in, in in all the disciplines for example cross country skiing and ski jumping and so on and so if they can get at least one competitor in, in every single event i think that would be a huge success now of course some of these would in no way would would many of these athletes be challenging for medals but you just never know i think there's been so much uncertainty not just for Chinese athletes, but but uh, but for athletes all around the world in terms of training, the reduced number of competitions. We don't know how athletes are going to perform in Beijing next February, and I think we saw this with with a lot of surprise. Some of the uh, the the best Grace Snow Sports is is one of the um, kind of under the Nielsen Sports divisions, and they basically predict they have a virtual medal table, and and it's pretty interesting. They generally do a pretty accurate job, but they did say. For this year in particular, with the Chinese team, because of COVID, because the, the team were pretty much restricted to training at home for at least a year before Tokyo, they had no idea the kind of form that Chinese athletes were in coming into Tokyo. And so there's a huge amount of uncertainty. I think that is the same for, for the Winter Olympics. We just don't know who the form athletes are going to be. Uh, we don't know how good they're going to be. I would say that they would probably outperform in terms of surprising the Olympics more than more than anything else, because because it's just that four year cycle. You don't really know who's who's going to be who's going to be a challenger. And this is this is only being uh, heightened this year because of because of the reasons I just mentioned. So a lot of unknowns on on so many different fronts, logistically, as well as as well as uh, on the field of play. But I think the buzz will pick up. We're just not feeling it just yet. But as I said, that that's kind of deliberate at the moment here in China. 
We were really fortunate to be able to grab a good friend of mine, someone I deeply respect both as a professional and a person, Ray Ma, an angel investor and fund consultant whose work involves identifying superior tech investment opportunities in both the U.S. and China. She is the co-creator of TechBuzz China, a paid community for investors and operators interested in China tech, and also co-hosts the bi-weekly TechBuzz China podcast. Finally, Ray is the executive chairman of the nonprofit Rookie Fund, which aims to be the best student-run fund for discovering and investing in student entrepreneurs in Asia. Ray is also former managing partner Asia for 500 Startups, so all in all, one of the premier thought leaders around technology and investment, especially with regards to China. During the podcast, I asked her to talk about some of her favorite emerging tech trends coming out of China that the rest of the world should be paying attention to, and here's what she had to say. Uh, my favorites to start are probably just cross-border in general. So specifically cross-border e-commerce that is really big in China right now. So basically the way to think about it is China has been the factory of the world for the past couple of decades. And because all the top brands in the world manufacture there, the factories there have now, now have the know-how to make the highest quality things. And it was really about them being able to either make branded products themselves or connect with other domestic brand makers, right? And, and that's what we've seen happen over the past couple of years, where you have, you know, a lot of people who are either foreign educated or just high industry experience or uh, come from the internet industry and therefore have a very digital way, data-driven way of thinking about things, um, syncing up with these very qualified manufacturing facilities and making really interesting new consumer goods. So that's one aspect. And the other aspect is, again, the previous model from China had been to export primarily wholesale, right? B2B unbranded into the rest of the world. And now realizing that the value is really in the branded part, of course, uh, a lot. There's these same entrepreneurs I was talking about earlier are capturing the opportunity and, and creating brands. The market for that is like conservatively, like a couple hundred billion dollars, but maybe in, in the trillion dollar range. And we're just starting to see that emerge. So that's a big trend. I think the other thing that I'm probably really excited about from this is not a sector I know much about and I'm trying to get to know more about it, but just climate tech in general. You see China really leaning heavily into climate tech for, you know, honestly, for political reasons as well as um, economic reasons. But politically, it's just like climate change is very destabilizing in terms of national security. So the government really needs to be on top of this. And then, of course, like this is also a technology that no one else in the world so far has you know cracked yet, where this is emerging technology. So China wants to not be behind, right? China doesn't want to have the same case as you know, semiconductors happen in climate tech because they don't want to be beholden to the West in terms of key IP. They want to develop and own IP themselves. So there's a lot of investment and excitement about that. And governments put all, put forth a lot of favorable regulations, specifically in climate tech. I think right now the most obvious one is electric vehicles. I drive a Tesla right now, but I don't know. Maybe my next car will be a Neo. I don't know. <laughs> so we'll see. But 
but you know, the global market is very attractive for all of these companies. And so it's also kind of a cross-border play. And then the third thing, I'll just mention three things. The third thing I'd probably be excited about is SaaS, um, enterprise software. It's that that's a little less developed than the other two I'm talking about. I think it's still really early, but I've spent a lot of this year talking to uh, late stage pre-IPO enterprise software companies. And I, I think just it's obvious that there's a big market for that. It's just that the willingness to pay is still not there. So we have maybe about, let's call it give or take 10 companies that are at an IPOable stage. And IPOable really means $100 million in revenue. So that's really not very many when you consider the size of the economy and the number of developers and you know the, the market need. It's growing quickly. So maybe in two, three years, it'll, there will be a lot more uh, companies that, that are public that are serving that segment of the market. As we hit the home stretch of 2021 and things started getting colder here in the Northern Hemisphere, we started having more conversations around the Winter Olympics and talking to experts in the snow sports vertical. Freddie Bacon, Director of Sport Development at Access Leisure Management, is the man tasked with growing the Burton Snowboard Academies across China. Freddie is an expert in the snow sports arena with over 14 years of global experience, so I asked him to broadly talk to us about the resorts in China to facilitate those academies and discuss whether their economic models would include more year-round activities, such as mountain biking the way we're seeing more resorts in the West focus on, in an effort to drive revenues as operational costs continue to climb. Yeah, this is a really important point. Resorts here are trying to be four-season resorts and as such have year-round revenue. Uh, I think a key a key point to make is that it's very difficult with the amount of customers that resorts are seeing here. It's very difficult to to get the staff that's required to service that amount of people. And by the time you've trained 500 to 1,000 staff and you've given them all seasonal contracts, they go away for six months and then you have to try and find another 500 to 1,000 staff, give them all another seasonal contract. And this this... This ongoing repetition of training and non-retaining staff because perhaps they've gone off to different jobs or different industries. And so it's very important for resorts who are looking to improve their service quality uh, to be able to hire people year round um, and maintain staff. And once they've delivered training, that they're going to get value out of that training for for years to come. Um, and so as part of that is to make sure that there is a year-round business model to ensure that there can be an opportunity to employ people. Um, and so I think I think for now, there are resorts that do it more as a service. Uh, and until some customer understanding and knowledge that these resorts are open year-round grows, I think it's it's definitely the, the focus is still on winter. But there are places in China, for example, Chongli, where the where the Olympic um, some of the Olympic venues will be happening. By train, it's 48 minutes from Beijing. And in middle of summer, it's mid-20s in terms of temperature, so 25, 26 degrees. It's green, it's beautiful, versus Beijing that's potentially 40 degrees and, and humid. And so you can just jump on a train for the weekend be in the mountains in 48 minutes in beautiful weather with huge uh, mountain environment. And now the resorts are putting on activities. So for families, there's so much to do. You can just go out there for a weekend or even a couple of days in the week. And if I was to make a prediction, I would actually think that in many years to come, these resorts will potentially be busier in summer than they are in winter. Um, and I think um, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens uh, in the in the coming years. But I, I can see lots of people buying property up there 
not to necessarily be spending lots of time there skiing and snowboarding in the winter, uh, but to have an escape from Beijing in the summer months. One of our more recent episodes was with Craig Smith, CEO of Burton Snowboards China. Founded in 2013 in Beijing, Burton China has grown to over 40 dealerships nationwide and seven premium partner resorts. No stranger to building the Burton brand abroad, Craig actually started with Burton at their Tokyo office two decades prior. I asked Craig to talk about what it was like growing a brand like Burton in China when the branding is so much around a lifestyle, much more than it is just a product, and how physical retail and mono-branded stores are such an important component of brand experience and brand validation, and not as much around revenue from direct sales. The most important focus for, for Burton China is sharing the fun of the lifestyle around snowboarding. Um, to be very honest, we wouldn't have to do too terribly much marketing. We have to do too terribly much work to, to lead the snowboarding industry. Um, you know, and I don't mean to be arrogant when I say that quite the opposite. We're fortunate enough where, you know, Jake's 40 years of working, working his ass off to make Burton and snowboarding, um, you know, the, sport of choice for and the brand of choice for the the 20 somethings and the 30 somethings of the world um and that is also happening in china the lifestyle component of of snowboarding is you know it's it's one of our main focuses going forward um you know, the opportunity on the business side, which to be honest at burton you know obviously it's a business but it's not our main focus our main focus as a brand is to you know first and foremost have as much fun as possible and share that fun. Um, it's, it's really one of Jake's visions early on. And um, he tells a story about when he started Burton, the reason he started it, cause he wanted to make it just a bunch of money. Um, and he knew it'd be a sports of the day. And, and honestly, the first year he, he failed. Um, and after the first year, he switched his mindset to really being focused on, the rider focus on doing the right thing for the brand, for the sport, and then the business would follow. And that's been Burton's direction since, you know, the, the late seventies. Um, and I, I do believe it's one reason why Burton is Burton because the business is important, but that's not first and foremost. So as we look at the Chinese market, you know, yeah. and we know that we will, we will do well in the, the snowboard industry. We don't have to do a lot of work to, to be the industry leader in China. We don't have to do a lot of work to really be successful on the business standpoint. Again, that's not us, though. We will work hard on the snowboarding side. But we're, where we see the opportunity to really share the, the spirit of Burton and share Jake's spirit in China is with the lifestyle side. One of the big differences between the Chinese market and all the other markets around the world is the Chinese consumer doesn't really know Burton yet. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work all over the world for Burton and, you know, I'll meet people either in a chairlift or a bar or wherever I'll meet them and, you know, just chat up a conversation. I'll say, yeah, I work for this company called Burton. Oh, Burton Snowboards. I love Burton, but I'm not a snowboarder, so it's not necessarily a brand for me. Um, but so for the Chinese consumer... Um, we have this ability to position the brand a little different in their mind. So the mind space that we're hoping to own in the Chinese consumer is much more about the lifestyle side. You know, bringing the spirit of, of snowboarding to the consumer 365 days a year. And how we will do that is through the, the apparel side of the business. We will, you know, our, our business format and how we're going to take the brand to the markets will be a little bit different than the other, uh, the other markets 
And right now, presently in, in China, mono branded stores are extremely important for a brand. Do you know the, the shopping malls everywhere in China are, are destinations? You know, people, you know, it makes everything's very digitally focused. However, that, that retail brick and mortar is still an area of uh, importance for a brand because it really validates a brand. Some of the shopping malls in, in China are, are destinations for people to go to to really learn about what's new in in the industry or sorry the, you know in the retail world. Um, there's some amazing uh, shopping malls. One of the the top selling shopping malls in the world is actually in Beijing. It's called SKP. Um, I think they did uh, U.S. dollars 2.6 billion in sales last year. Um, one of the top uh, top shopping malls in the world revenue wise. Um, their biggest day was November 16th last year, and they did 150 million U.S. dollars in sales in one day, um, which I thought was pretty impressive. So to be in these these shopping areas, it validates the brand. And again, so you know, if you go to a shopping mall, you're not going to go to a shopping mall to buy a snowboard or boots or bindings, but you're going to go there to you know maybe buy a backpack, maybe buy some you know some apparel, and that's a, a format that we will evolve in China a little bit differently than in the other worlds, well, uh, the other regions. Um, we are planning to have that 100 to 150 square meter stores that are very much talking about the lifestyle of brand, the fun, the travel, the art, the music, everything that makes up the, the lifestyle around snowboarding will be really telling the consumer that story at these smaller mall-based stores. And of course, in the same breath, we will have flagship stores around the, the major cities in China. Um, and those will be truly the the full rollout of the entire product line and, and the service and the community building that's that's so important around the sport. The last episode of the year might just have been our favorite. So we're dropping a snippet here to entice and encourage everyone to go back and give the full episode a listen because it's well worth it. Gordon Holden is director and professor of political science at the China Institute, as well as an adjunct professor of business at the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. This episode was all about China's maritime positioning and activities, and this excerpt is Gordon talking about the imperatives driving China's focus on the maritime geography surrounding its borders and beyond. Chinese culture, and I think many of your listeners understand this, this is a culture where there's built in a very strong emphasis in public pronouncements on the positive. You don't get too much. The mask slips sometimes, but you don't get too much of the sort of real politic assessments you get from American think tanks or even American uh, security officials, it tends to hew to a very much uh, their own values, but an internationalist positive spin. Calculating what are their actual maritime intentions, you have to look not just at what they say, at what they do. And of course, as with most countries and most, particularly most great powers, there's always going to be a gap between the ideology and the actual practice. And that's true of the United States, in my opinion. Um, I'm not saying they aren't about building and supporting democracies, but they also have taken a very real politic view of the earth historically, and China is is no different. What's interesting for me in the Chinese case, though, is that uh, China, again, has moved from an autarky, from an economically self-reliant phase, with basically a closed economy and a closed nation that ended decisively in 1978 when Deng Xiaoping and reformers open the door and open China to global prospects. China is now the leading trading partner of most countries on earth, about two thirds, I believe. And they are the world's largest trading power. And they are interestingly the dominant commercial factor in international commerce. Not that these are necessarily goods are always sailing under Chinese flags, 
but they dominate you know, more than half of the Iron Age trade that moves by sea. It goes to China. Same for most of the base metals. Uh, the trade is is dominated by China. So they have these two imperatives. One wanting to protect their coast, to project force out from their coast, to dominate their region strategically, which all great powers tend to want to do in their neighborhood. But they also have this extraordinary trading relationship. It's interestingly interesting to me. It's interesting to me that in the case of the Royal Navy in the UK, the British Empire, where commerce led ahead of the political expansion in many cases of the empire, uh, United Kingdom moved from a defense focused on the, on those small islands that comprise the UK to a broader emphasis on freedom of navigation, trolled by the Royal Navy and support of trade, both their own mercantilist trade, but also or generally free trade. The United States went through the same Develop. If you look back into the 19th century, you find America building a host of forts, some along the Canadian border, but others on the coastline, defending their coast potentially from a war with the uh, a renewed war with the United Kingdom, Britain. Um, gradually, however, though deeper into the 19th century, America expanded its capacity both in trade and naval terms. The point that. The U.S. Navy then began in the 20th century to replace the Royal Navy or to work alongside them, but then eventually replacing them as the, the global patrol force in support of international commerce and free trade. I've been watching to see and waiting to see whether we'll see the same evolution of Chinese maritime thinking. Once they feel more comfortable in dominating the South China Sea and their immediate littoral, will they begin to shift to an approach whereby their own, the movement of their own navy abroad, freedom of navigation for naval ships will begin to, to overcome that border, that maritime border protection sense, where they'll want to share their, sail their ships freely around the world. It will be because of their own strength, less concern about a handful of naval vessels approaching their own shores. We will see. I haven't seen it yet, certainly in their ideology. And you see it only in a very limited practice. It's true that they do exercise with the Russian navy even in the Baltic and the Mediterranean and elsewhere, they sail ships, uh, naval ships now, particularly into patrolling the approaches, the Malacca Straits, the Persian Gulf. Uh, sometimes it's anti-piracy. It's very often, I think, eventually uh, a way to protect their own supply lines in the in case of a conflict. But we may yet see, and this would be projecting deep in the 21st century, a more global approach, whereas it will not just be a coastal protection thing, a immediate zone of influence, but in a global Chinese naval role in the way that you see, supported by bases, in the way you see the U.S. Navy playing that role and the way that Britain did before. And that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed our 2021 year in review, and we look forward to seeing you all again next year. Again, from all of us here at the Negotiation and WPIC Marketing and Technologies, we wish all of you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.